You are listening to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. Thank you, Father. Appreciate it. Hello. Uh, I'm, a, I'm originally uh, an Oklahoma boy. I was uh, born in Broken Arrow, St. Francis Hospital, raised in Broken Arrow at St. Anne's, went to All Saints Catholic School, uh, lost every basketball game at St. Bernard's, right? Moved away when I was 16 to Houston, where I'm at now. So uh, it's always a joy to be back. It's always surreal when I'm uh, in a car and it says like Broken Arrow, exit here. And I'm like, oh, right, I'm in Oklahoma. Okay, so uh, let us pray. That's okay. Be funny if you're like, nah, leave work at work. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, the Father of mercy, we bless and praise your holy and sacred name. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and the eternal salvation that he brings us. Lord Jesus, you are the God-man. You are Emmanuel, God with us. When you entered into the fullness and took upon yourself the fullness of our humanity, you did not come as a Lord and Master to dominate. You came as a babe in a manger, as a laborer, condemned as a criminal. But in all these things, you were still Christ the King, showing us a new way to rule. Lord Jesus Christ, you said that you have come not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. You are our Eucharistic King. So we humble ourselves before you now as we beg for your most Holy Spirit to rest upon us. Come Holy Spirit, then kindle within us the fire of your divine love, send forth your spirit, and we shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be or without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Take out your Bibles. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. What I'm going to do is read from Luke 24. That's going to set up today's talk. I realize that churches like this are super echoey, and I talk loudly and quickly, so I'm going to try to slow down but I won't about halfway through. So uh, how many of y'all are familiar, just a show of hands, we'll just do this, we'll do this thing. Show of hands, how many of y'all are familiar with the story of the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel? Right, handful of you, okay, yeah. Some of you are like, oh yeah, no, totally, okay. Uh, that very day, this is Easter Sunday, two of them were going uh, to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You need to remember that plot point. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. One of the things, in order to give us the proper background, these people believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the king long lost who would restore Israel to the ultimate power in the world, protecting them from people like the Romans who had dominated them, the pagans that had surrounded them, that they would finally have peace and, and even a little, uh, little power ruling over. And then they just watch this guy who did incredible miracles 
get brutally murdered by their leaders in cahoots with the pagan powers that surrounded them. So they were not just devastated, but they were also completely confused because nothing made sense. How does God work through this person, mighty in word and deed, where even the demons are subject in his name, and then he just get destroyed by worldly power? They could not reconcile these things in their head. And so they are leaving Jerusalem. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. They are going away from Jerusalem seven miles uh, to uh, seven miles away to Emmaus. As he said to the, uh, and he said to them, what is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, right? I love this little historical detail. They're devastated, right? Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he answered them, what things? Right, so Jesus, he's playing coy and he's building up this moment. And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, now this is the important part for the whole rest of tonight's talk. It's the words that come out of Jesus Christ's mouth next. But he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, AKA the Old Testament, right? he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, oftentimes when we hear stuff like this, we always see it and hear it within the context of Christianity, but there was no New Testament. There wasn't even a remote idea of the New Testament when this scene occurred. What there was, was Moses and the prophets and the wisdom literature. And Jesus goes through the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, to show them that the Messiah must suffer, the things concerning himself. The story goes on. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. A little historical context, right? You're walking everywhere. There's no streetlights, right? This is pitch black when you get out of the cities, right? That's why the cities wall themselves in at the end of the night. So to go, to keep going, you're going on in darkness. You are making yourself very vulnerable. So he went in and stayed with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed the bread, broke the bread and gave it to them. I added the and bread all those times. Taken, blessed, broken, given. In all four institution narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul's first Corinthians, that's the formula. Jesus took bread into his hands said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, taken, blessed, broken, given. Taken, blessed, broken, given. He has the five thousand, or the, the, the handful of loaves and fish. He takes the loaves, taken, blessed, broken, given, and then all of a sudden it's multiplied to feed 5,000, probably by actually like 20,000 people. So this is what they said. 
or this is what happens. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he, op- while he talked to us on the road and he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, seven miles away. Returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 who were with them who said, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. When they told, then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he, and this is how Luke ends it and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So when Jesus Christ chooses to reveal himself to these two apostles, to these two disciples, he reveals himself only after he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread, right? So this is very important for us to understand because I think for many of us as Catholics, we might understand the church's teaching on the real presence, that this is no longer just a symbol. The symbolic nature now is the reality of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. This is Jesus Christ. But we often miss how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, especially in terms of anticipation and then fulfillment. We often miss this, especially when it comes to the Eucharist. So one of my favorite things to do, it's a class that I teach at uh, my church at St. Anthony's, it's called inclusion. And in my inclusion class, I've brought in about 100, 125 um, Protestant Christians into the Catholic Church through this class, because that, that's what the goal is. You know the RCIA or the OCIA? Uh, the RCI, it's, it's mainly for unbaptized people. So you go through all the rites and do all these ceremonies throughout this whole time. But oftentimes parishes don't know what to do with Baptist, like, oh, I've been married to this Baptist over here for 10 years. Now he wants to become Catholic. What do we do? And it's like, put him with the people who are unbaptized and who have never read the Bible before, right? And so what the church actually asks in the RCIA is, don't do that. They're already baptized. If they're validly baptized, okay. They belong in the mass. They belong to, they can't receive communion yet, but They belong here to offer their sacrifices with the holy sacrifice of the mass. Great. But then let's teach about these specific things that where their faith tradition and ours might differ. And so one of the beautiful things is you crack open sacred scripture. It is so difficult to not encounter Jesus Christ on every single page of the Old Testament. And so often, though, we don't have eyes to see. I mean, we hear the stories, and some of them are crazy. We can admit that. that Some of them are are extreme and all the things that happen. But oftentimes, because we're not paying close enough attention and we're not immersing ourselves into what is going on, we totally miss it. So the first thing I want to say is Jesus Christ taught us to look in the Old Testament to find him. That's what that story is about. That story is also the pattern of the mass, the gathering of the disciples, the proclaiming of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist and being sent out into the world. Isn't that fascinating? I find that fascinating, but this pattern is right there for us. And so when we look at this with eyes to see, let's look in the Old Testament in order to understand what Jesus is doing. First and foremost, all four gospels paint Jesus as the Passover lamb, right? The Passover lamb. You guys know what the Passover lamb is? The Passover lamb, let's, let's rehearse it if you don't remember. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Israelites were imprisoned for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And so what was happening? They begged God every day for a redeemer and a deliverer. Uh, the word redeemer uh, is like the word for redeeming a coupon. It means to buy back, right? That's what the word literally means. And it was a slave market term. 
reserved usually for kinsmen who go and buy their family members out of slavery if like, for instance, their debts have become too, too much and they were being sold along with their land. You would have a kinsman redeemer who would come in and buy everyone out of slavery and keep the family intact, right? So when Israel called God our redeemer, they were saying that he is the one who comes and pays the price to buy us out of slavery in, in a very real way. That is what Exodus is all about. It is about God visiting the plagues and doing all this stuff, but to free his people. And that's why the great Jewish hymn is, I know that my redeemer lives. This is important. So they cried out to God for 400 years for deliverer. God sends him Moses. And we get Moses. Moses' story is amazing, right? You know, you all know the story. I don't have to go through that. But the 10th plague is the plague of what? Do we remember what the 10th plague is? What happens on the 10th plague? It's so funny. Like, everyone knows the answer. Like, I'll mumble it second. I'm not going to mumble it first. Right? The, the death of the firstborn, right? The angel of death will descend upon Egypt. And that's scary and terrifying and all that. Why? Because that's how the enslavement of Israel began with the death of the firstborn Hebrew children. That's how Moses was almost killed. He had to be floated down the river Nile. Here's an interesting way that Moses is a type of Christ. Moses was raised both in the house of Pharaoh, but was also born of slaves. St. Paul says in second Corinthians that Christ, though he was rich for our sake, became poor. Like almost like Moses who was in the lap of luxury, but for the sake of the Hebrews became poor so that by his poverty, Israelites might become rich. By his poverty, we might become rich. It's just fascinating the way these things parallel one another. And so what do we say? God says, okay, Moses, I want you to go and take an unblemished male lamb in the prime of its life. An unblemished male lamb in the prime of its life, one-year-old, and I want you to sacrifice it. Right now, we're grossed out by animal sacrifices, but in an agrarian society, Animal death was very common, so people wouldn't have been all that grossed out. I mean, I buy my steak with a meat diaper wrapped in saran wrap, uh, but, uh, you know, like, I'm not used to this, but my kids are, like, grossed out by my medium-rare steak, so um, less squeamish back then. So they take the lamb, and they sacrifice the lamb, and a sacrifice, the, the Latin word for sacrifice means to make holy. So this isn't, I'm just killing this animal for a meal. This is a sacrificial meal. It is a religious meal, okay? So that's number one. Number two, the animal sacrificed was an unblemished male lamb in the prime of its life, and the manner was very peculiar. You get the blood, you, you kill the animal so that you get its blood into a bowl. And then you take that bowl and you use a hyssop branch and you paint your doorposts and lintel. And when the angel of death descends like a fog over, over Egypt, it will pass over your house seeing the blood. But that's not the end of the story. Then you have to take the lamb and you have to roast it whole. A halakha, right? A holocaust, a whole burnt offering. You roast it whole. And then if you, do, and you eat it with your family with bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of slavery, and with unleavened bread. And if the lamb meat is too much, you invite your neighbors because this is not an individual meal. This is a communal meal. And your neighbors come over and you eat the food with your feet, uh, sandals on your feet, staff in hand, ready to rock and roll. How did God deliver his people from slavery to the world's greatest superpower at the time? Through liturgy. Through liturgy. That's how God delivered. In fact, if you actually back it up into the book of Exodus a little bit earlier, he doesn't say, let my people go first. 
The first thing he says is, let my people go out into the desert a three-day journey so they can offer sacrifices that are an abomination to the Egyptians. And then they'll come back. And Pharaoh every time was like, nah, no, I'm not falling for that. Okay, just the men can go. The women got to stay behind. Okay, just the men and the women can go, but the cattle got to stay behind. And it's like, nope, nope, nope. You got to let us go out. And then he goes, if I let you go, you're never coming back. But the whole thing was right worship to God, surrounded by the idolatry of the Egyptians. And we know for a fact, because of what happens at the foot of Mount Sinai, that God was trying to uproot the, the, the pagan gods from the hearts of Israel. They had been in Egypt too long. The moment they get away, what do they do? When the moment Moses leaves, they make Apis, the bull god, a golden calf, and they worship it and bow down, and they have their own spicy liturgy at the foot of Mount Sinai. Right, so in the context of this, what God is doing is he's trying to liberate us from the lies of these idols that we've received and believed, and he's delivering them from this. And then simultaneously, he's doing all this through a meal, but he's also saving their lives. Because then the angel descends. Now here's the deal. What if your firstborn son doesn't like mutton? Right? You wake up and your son doesn't. Because the command is not to spread the blood. The command is not just to sacrifice the animal. The command is to eat the flesh of the animal with unleavened bread and bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of slavery. And so there they were every single night, right? And if you know any Jewish friends, ask them, how does the Seder meal start? And they'll tell you that, you know, the little child will come up and say, Father, why is tonight different from all other nights? This is the night of deliverance when God comes to bring both justice and mercy. And how does he do it? Through a meal, through a liturgy, through prayer, through community, all of these things, but principally through the death of the lamb. Now, fast forward thousands of years and you have about 1400 years and you have John the Baptist who's baptizing in the river Jordan, which is the exact same place where the Israelites entered the Holy Land in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And there he is baptizing people and he sees his cousin Jesus coming and he understands the Holy Spirit reveals to him who this one is. And what does John the Baptist call Jesus at that moment in John chapter one? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now it's amazing because when the Archangel Gabriel reveals the saving mission of Jesus to Mary, he says he will take away his people's sins, plural. But John the Baptist says sin, singular. It's a difference of emphasis. One represents all the accumulated sins, but the other one represents the reign of sin since the original. And so here, Jesus is called three times the Lamb of God. And then John's followers leave and James, or excuse me, John and Andrew go and follow Jesus. And this is the beginning when John the Baptist famously says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's because from that moment onwards, John's disciples begin to leave John to follow Jesus because John said, behold the Lamb of God. Why is this important? Because this was during the Feast of Passover, we find out. And all these people were down getting baptized by John. The reason why I said all of Israel or all of Jerusalem was coming is because a lot of people were going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Because you have to remember in the Old Testament world, there was only one place where sacrifice could occur. And that was in the temple by the priests. So if you wanted to celebrate and you live 20 miles north in Galilee, you had to grab your lamb or more likely grab your gold. 
and you went down, you bought a lamb from the markets in Jerusalem. They raised him in a little town not too far away called Bethlehem. That's where they did the, that's where they raised the temple lambs. And then you would go into the temple. The husband, the head of the house would take his, the lamb there. It would be sacrificed. And then you would take the flesh of the sacrifice. The priest would eat it there and join in the sacrifice. And then you would take that home and celebrate the meal, the Passover liturgy there in your homes. But the animal had to be sacrificed there. So you can imagine the line to Jerusalem with 100,000 people gathered with their lambs, number one, just the smell alone. But you had all of these people gathered and they're taking their family's lamb. And John the Baptist says, there is God's lamb. And so when we begin to look at this narrative, every single one of the four gospel writers paints the death of Jesus Christ, Good Friday, as a Passover sacrifice. John explicitly says, for it's at that hour that they began to sacrifice the lambs for the Passover when Jesus is being crucified. Um, They repeatedly reference the feast day to take the bodies down from the cross and all these things. And so as this narrative builds, what does Jesus do on the night before he dies? He goes into the upper room. John's gospel records Jesus saying, I am earnestly desiring to celebrate this feast or this Passover with you. So Jesus, so when sometimes we talk about the mass and I'm sure father, when he does his series, he's going to go into this, but sometimes there's a weird theology that kind of creeps in that the meal that we share at mass is nothing more than a fraternal meal. It's nothing more than that. It's nothing more than the sharing among siblings of, of, of holy bread or something like that. But it's more than that because the meal that Jesus started the Eucharist that he instituted both the Eucharist and the priesthood at was not just a meal. It was a sacrificial memorial. It was Passover. In fact, St. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. They understood that Jesus wasn't just you know, taking over some Jewish holiday, that Jesus Christ was actually fulfilling what the Passover lamb was meant to be. So we have this notion, what is a Passover lamb? A a young male lamb in the prime of its life that's unblemished. Jesus Christ, like us in all things except sin. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says, uh, has Jesus before he became incarnate saying to the father, the blood of bulls and goats you desire not but a body you have prepared for me. Lo, I come to do your will. In fact, the gospel writers are pushing this so hard that they record, John's gospel records one unique fact, that when they raise the wine up to the gall, right, up to his lips to drink from the cross, it said they use the hyssop branch, which is the same branch they use to paint the doorpost and lintel with the blood of Christ. And so you begin to see this and you're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, he's really going, I mean, they're, they're really driving hard into the paint on this one. Like, the, Jesus really is the Passover lamb, but he's not just the Passover lamb. This is the thing that I think we get hung up on. It's not just one type, it's all the types fulfilled in Jesus. So for instance, in everyone's favorite book of the Bible, which is Leviticus, uh, <laughs> in everyone's favorite, do you guys know who Jeff Cavins is? He started the great, uh, the Bible timeline, great adventure stuff I have his Bible. Um, 
But uh, he talks about how like when people try to read the Bible in a year, I mean, without Father Mike Schmitz's handsome face and voice guiding you, but when you, uh, it's okay. Me and Father Mike, we're friends. I text him from time to time. It's cool. It's cool. Don't worry about it. But um, Jeff Capons was talking about, I was interviewing him once and he said, you know, it's, you know, people get, you know, they buy a new Bible. It's January 1st. They get a new pen and notebook and they're journaling your Genesis and they get into Exodus, all the plagues and they get to Leviticus and they're like, oh, okay, I'm done. You know, and they abandon it mid-February. And it's funny because, uh, so I was talking to him, I said, do you know what the fatal flaw in your, in your thing is, right? In this thing? He's like, what's that? And I was like, the fatal flaw is, I was talking with a Jewish guy, uh, uh, son of a rabbi, and he said, the funniest thing, when I was telling him about this Bible study thing of reading the Bible in the narrative structure, and you skip over the prophets, you skip over these books, so that then you go back, you can understand where they belong in the bigger story. I said, to a Jewish person, Leviticus was the first book you ever read. You might've heard the stories of Genesis and Exodus, but the first book you learned to read was Leviticus because that affected your daily life. So what I began doing was I would go on BibleGateway.com, select Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition Bible from the drop-down menu of 700 English Bibles. And then I would take away chapters and verses and headings. And I would type in Leviticus chapter one and to whatever the last chapter of Leviticus is. I don't know. And... Uh, <laughs> And I would just copy and paste it into a Word document. I'd get a little better typography, make some thick margins for note-taking, and I'd print it out and I'd just read it, right? And it's fascinating because there are six principal blood sacrifices or animal sacrifices. But animal sacrifices aren't the only types of sacrifices. There are also what they call cereal or grain offerings, and there are wine offerings. So it's fascinating to me that when you look in the book of Leviticus, Jesus Christ and his death on Good Friday perfectly fulfills the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all of these offerings where the animal is sacrificed for the sake of, and the word in Hebrew is kippur, where we get the word yam kippur, if you know that, for the sake of atonement or a ransoming, that the blood is gotten. Why, does it, why is it a bloody sacrifice? Why does that matter so much? Well, for ancient pagan religions, the point was to kill the animal. And the point was almost like the bloodlust of the gods. One, some cults believe that you were feeding the deity. God says very clearly in Psalm 50, uh, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, right? He says, as if I drink the blood of bulls and eat the flesh of goats. And he said, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for I own the cattle on a thousand hills, which is how you know God's a Texan. So the, uh, it was a subtle Texas joke. Uh, so when we talk about this, like they, they, these pagan deities, these pagan cultures, they believe that by getting, by killing the animal, you were putting your sins on the animal, then you kill the animal. But in Judaism, on the feast of Yom Kippur, when you put the sins on the scapegoat, right? You've heard that phrase scapegoat? That comes from the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. When you put the sins on the scapegoat, the scapegoat's now unclean. It is unfit to be sacrificed. So they chase it away. And there's a guy out in the desert who then gets the goat and then chases him off a cliff so he doesn't do a U-turn and go back and repollute Jerusalem, which is kind of funny when you think about it. But anywho, uh, so and then what the guy in the desert does and the high priest does on that feast of Yom Kippur is then they strip off all their clothes and burn them because they're unclean because they can counter the goat. And then he, the high priest, purifies himself, puts on a sheer linen ephod, and then he sacrifices another animal and takes that blood and goes through in a giant bowl, golden bowl, 
and he sprinkles the blood around the interior of the temple. And he goes up to the altar of the holy place and he goes to the, uh, the table of incense, which is in front of the Holy of Holies. And then after much prayer, he walks through the veil of the Holy of Holies with the blood of this bull and he throws it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the meeting place of God with humanity. And why is he doing that? It's so weird and it's gross to us, like animal blood and he's flinging it over and over again. Because in Leviticus chapter 17, it very clearly says, don't eat, don't drink the blood of animals. So like Jews to this day who keep kosher, do not eat rare cuts or, or, or any of that stuff. They use a heavily salted, kosher food is heavily salted to try to absorb as much of blood as possible. But they used to be religions where they would strangle the animals so that they wouldn't lose the blood. And then they would drink the blood or they would eat a very bloody cut of meat or whatever. But for Israel, the whole point was not the blood in the sense of killing the animal. The point was the blood is the life of the animal. And sin is death and pollution. That's the phrase used to describe sin over and over again. That's why they're called the purity laws or the cleanliness laws. That's why lepers had to say things like unclean, right? Because sin and disease were all kind of one thing. And so what they did was they got the blood of these sacrifice animals and would fling its life where previously there was death. So the getting of the blood is meant to be a detergent to clean the pollution of sin and death. It was, in fact, most of the time in the sacrifices, the animals weren't sacrificed on the altar. The animals were sacrificed outside the temple and their blood was brought into the altar. So over and over and over again in Leviticus, when it goes to these six animal sacrifices, it says, then the high priest dips his thumb in there and smears the blood on the horn of the altar. What's the horn of the altar? I have no idea, but that's what it says. Every time I read it, I'm like, I, my brain cannot get a picture of what the horn of the altar is. But then they would take the blood and splash it in front of the Holy of Holies to be like, this guy's sin is keeping Israel from getting close to God. So here's the atoning sacrifice, the ransom that we're paying. And Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. So St. Paul not only says Jesus is our Passover lamb, but he also says, he who knew no sin, and translations will go in two different directions, became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or a better translation, which is, he who knew no sin became a sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God. That he is the fulfillment of the sin offering, the peace offering, the guilt offering. That Jesus is the blood sacrifice. Why? Because his blood actually cleanses us from sin. So how do I get his blood on me to cleanse me? Well, that's what baptism is. Have you been washed in the blood? You hear that at a Protestant churches down here in Texas, right? You've been washing the blood of Jesus. And it's like, imagine that's your first day in church. Uh, I gotta go. You've been washing the blood. Okay, that's scary, right? But the whole idea of the Eucharistic or the baptismal typography, the whole idea of it is it's water that cleanses, but it's also the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that washes away our sins. The book of Revelation says that the saints have their robes washed white in the blood of the lamb. That's why we have white baptismal garments for our babies. They've been washed, they've been cleansed, they've been sanctified. But then there's this other set of sacrifices, cereal or grain offerings and wine offerings. And it actually describes these cereal and grain offerings and wine offerings, not as an atoning sacrifice, not using the word kippur, but using the phrase for a memorial. 
So you take fine flour, and what they do is they had this one lamb called the Talmud lamb, and it's how they began and ended the sacrificial temple services every day. The first sacrifice offered, the high priest did the Talmud lamb, and they would take the lamb and they would sacrifice it and they would put it on top of the altar and they'd light a huge fire underneath the lamb and it would be burned completely. There'd be no, they, they wouldn't eat the sacrifice. But then as the lamb is being cooked, they then take fine flour and they pour it onto the burning lamb. And then they take a chalice of wine and they pour that onto the fine flour and onto the lamb. And that is the offering. And they take a small portion of that fine flour and they keep it off to the side and it bakes in the fire of the Talmud lamb, the Holocaust, the whole burnt offering. So as that's, remember the animal's already dead. It's not like burning alive or something. So some of y'all are like, this is just gross, right? So as the lamb is burning, it's actually baking a small loaf of bread. Or two small loaves, sorry. Two small loaves of bread that's unleavened that the high priest eats the first loaf. And then at the end of the day, at around four o'clock, they sacrifice the second time at lamb. And then he takes that bread from earlier and he consumes it to wrap up all the prayers of the day. And it's fascinating that over and over again, when the phrase of these cereal offerings are offered in the book of Leviticus, it is for a memorial. So on the night before Jesus died, he took bread into his hands. See, Jesus Christ knew what was going to happen on Good Friday. He was going to be a sin offering for the sake of his people. He was going to be the Passover lamb offered in order to bring us deliverance from our sins and freedom, not from an earthly power, but from sin, death, and Satan. He knew what he was going to do, and he earnestly desired to celebrate this sacrificial memorial meal of Passover. So when he goes in there, he's drawing on all these motifs, but the most important thing he's doing is giving us a way to be in communion with what happens the next day, the beginning of his Paschal mystery, right? That phrase, Paschal mystery, is incredibly important for us to understand. You guys know what the phrase Paschal means? You've heard that before, Paschal, Paschal. It means Passover mystery. How many of y'all speak Spanish? Anyone speak Spanish? I am not in Texas anymore. It would be the exact opposite. How do you say Easter in Spanish? Right, exactly, exactly, Paschal. But we preserve the Germanic origin of a pagan holiday in our English language, Easter. But if you come from a Romance language, it's Paschal. It's the Paschal mystery. It's the, it's the Passover mystery. And so what's the Passover mystery? That Jesus Christ, the unblemished male in the prime of his life, is offered for us. The firstborn son is offered for us. And his blood shed becomes an atoning sacrifice that frees us from evil. But this is the fascinating thing. He created a way that this once and for all sacrifice, so it's only happening once, this once for all sacrifice is offered, is represented in an unbloody way that fulfills all of the Old Testament types of cereal and grain offerings. So what types am I talking about? There's a dude named Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. See, this is the part where I talk loudly and quickly. So I'm like, in my head, I'm like, just slow down, man. Just slow down. But you only have uh, 18 minutes and we got like 45 more minutes of content. So let's speed it up a bit. Sorry, echoing chamber. Uh, So (laughs) when Jesus Christ is doing the offering, we have this, we look, or excuse me, when Abraham goes down into the Holy Land, he conquers people, there's a priest named Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek, the title means king of righteousness. He's the head of a town called Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of Salem, the king of peace. His title means the king of righteousness. And Melchizedek is paid from Abraham a tithe, which is what is given to priests. I find that fascinating. He doesn't do that to any other pagan king. Maybe there's something different about this Melchizedek. So he goes to Melchizedek and he gives him a tenth of all he has. And then Melchizedek does a prayer of bread and wine and he makes an offering out of it. And the fascinating thing is King David, when he was instituted king and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy Land, the scripture says that he is wearing a sheer linen ephod, which is the garment of a priest. And every few steps, the Ark of the Covenant gets closer to Jerusalem. They sacrifice, and he's dancing wildly before the Lord and all this stuff. But the coronation hymns that were written in ancient Israel when a son of David took the throne was, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the king of Israel was understood to share in this priestly authority of the king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. And what did this king of Jerusalem, king of Salem offer but bread and wine? King David and during his reign, the sons of David would create a new offering that we understand through the rabbi, the rabbinical tradition um, called the todah, the thank offering. The Hebrew word todah is the thank offering. And there was a rabbinical belief that when the Messiah comes, when Messiah, when the Meshiach comes, all sacrifices will cease except the Todah, the thank offering. And it's fascinating when you understand the word Eucharist means literally thanksgiving or thank offering. When the Messiah comes, all that's left is to say thank you. Because he paid the price for sin. He paid the price for guilt. He paid the price for peace. He paid it not because he had to but because we needed him to. Jesus Christ could have walked up and like, hey, how y'all doing tonight? You're all forgiven. Adios. Why did he do this? Do you not understand, oh foolish men, slow to believe that all that was written in Moses and the prophets was to fulfill the mission of Christ. So when we look in the Old Testament, we don't look in the Old Testament. Well, let me rephrase this. When we look in the Old Testament, we find types and figures that anticipate both Christ's offering on the cross, his resurrection, but also the Eucharist. So I always take people, so Jesus goes from the upper room. Where does Jesus go on Thursday night before he's arrested? Yes, the garden. Let me tell you like a ridiculous story. So I just went to the Holy Land for the first time. It's like 12 days in the Holy Land. Right, so we're bouncing all over Galilee and I'm loving it and I'm like crying on the shore of Galilee. I'm like, I was, that was pure putty there. And uh, then we go to Jordan and we go to the World Heritage Site of Petra. Have you guys ever heard of Petra? You ever seen the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? That's Petra. It's the most incredible place. I got a camel. I rode on a camel. Then I took a golf cart back because my camel was surly. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I made it out alive. The guy that was with me got bit by my camel. I mean, it was awesome. His, his bicep was purple. It was like that beforehand. Um, no, so we go back and I get to Jericho. Our bus pulls up in Jericho. It's so funny saying these words out. Now they're just cities. But that, you know, like you have the biblical name, right? So we pull, we pull up our bus to Jericho and we get a lovely lunch and half of us got sick. And some of us got so sick that when the moment we pulled into Jerusalem, we never left the bathroom. 
bedroom in our hotel. So all of the people in the group, they're going to all these different sites and all these different things. They're like, oh my gosh, we just saw this and we just saw that. So then it was three days into it. I'm having like visions. I'm so dehydrated, not good visions. I was listening to a sci-fi book and my brain just was like, hey, let's, let's just hang out in this sci-fi universe. You're dehydrated, why not? So I'm like having all these like craziness and I'm like, I have got to move every time I'm here. So they said, okay, we're gonna leave at 5.30 in the morning. We're gonna walk the original Stations of the Cross and then we're gonna end at the Holy Sepulcher. And then we're gonna come back to the hotel at eight. And I'm like, 5.30 to eight, I can do that. So I suffered through it all and I did it all and it was incredible. And they're like, okay, we're gonna take an hour break. We're gonna eat breakfast and then we're gonna go off. And I'm like, I'm done, peace. And I just went back to my hotel room and slept and I was sick as a dog and that was all I could do. Then the next day they all left for Bethany and then to go back to the Dead Sea. And I was like, I can't go. I was devastated, it was our last day in Israel. About noon, I was getting a little restless and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna do it. I bought like five Gatorades and I had them in my backpack and some sick beats on my iPhone. And uh, I'm like, I'm just gonna walk the streets of Jerusalem by myself. So I'm going, we're in this ultra Orthodox quarter and it's right next to this Arab quarter and it was Shabbat, right? So none of the Jews are out and all the Arabs are out and I'm hanging out with them, walking through the streets and high-fiving them that, in my head. And uh, going through and it was like normal city life it's like new jerusalem but then it was right next to old jerusalem you go through the walls you go through all this stuff and i'm just walking i'm just walking i'm looking around i, I knew there was a church down there so i go down there and i'm walking around and i'm like and this guy comes up and he seems angry and he's yelling at me i'm like what's going on and he's like the church is closed but you can enter through the side gate i'm like okay I didn't ask, but okay uh very helpful in his anger so i walk around and it's just beautiful like olive trees and I'm in this garden and I'm like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta figure out where I am. And I read and I'm in the garden where the agony, the garden of Gethsemane. Now I'm such an idiot, I didn't even look. And I turn around and I look and there is all of old Jerusalem on top of the mountain right behind me. I'm like, well, how did I not even see this? And they know that some of the trees are 2000 years old. Like they preserved it. And I'm like, this is insane. And I'm here and I, I just spent hours in the garden. And uh, a little side note about me, my wife and I went through three miscarriages back to back to back and it was brutal on us and the third almost took my wife's life uh she, it was an ectopic pregnancy the the baby implanted in her scar tissue and it almost killed my wife and so it's like this terrifying moment in my life and my wife super struggling with depression and and and, and just the wave of guilt and shame and all this stuff and just weird emotions and it led to a deep depression in our life for about a year and uh, I'm, in, I'm in there and I'm just sitting there and I'm looking at the rock where they think he had his agony. And I just, you know, it's super touristy. These people coming around with their iPads. Hey, you know, Ethel, take me a picture of me. You know, and they're all screaming loudly in these beautiful churches. And I'm like, Ugh. but at this moment, all the tour groups came in were either Catholic or Orthodox. Like they were devout, they were pilgrims. They weren't tourists. And they would all come in and do the sign of the cross, T-Rex arm first or second, you know, depending if you're Orthodox or not. And yeah, T-Rex, okay, anyhow. So they would, uh, they would go in and they would just sit around me and pray for like 20 minutes. You never see that. You're in and out in five minutes in all these sites. And everyone was just praying and everything was just perfect. And I get out and I walk back and I see the, the and I go back among the olive trees and I just kind of rehash this mystery that on the night before Jesus died, he goes into a garden. St. Paul in Romans chapter five, verses 12 and following says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And that through one man's disobedience, sin and death entered the world. 
So by one man's obedience, life would come into the world. And he's comparing and contrasting Jesus and Adam. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus chooses to go into a garden before he is delivered up. Now, if you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't you touch it. Don't even touch it or you will die, die. You will die the death. Isn't it amazing when you look at it from this lens of Luke 24, that all of salvation hinges on food that is eaten from a tree. That's the story. So how does Jesus conclude this? Well, both Saint in, in, in Luke's um, Acts of the Apostles, in 1 Peter, you have the lips of Peter and the lips of Paul say this, that the cross, and he quotes Deuteronomy, cursed be any man who is hung from a tree. So that the cross becomes the tree of death, the tree of suffering. And in a way, it becomes the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that if you touch it, you die, die. And what did Jesus do? I love Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, where Mary rushes around to get around the crowds just in time to see Jesus fall. And she runs to hold her baby boy. And instead of letting her embrace him, he embraces the cross. You see his arms get tight around it. And he says these words, see, mother, how I make all things new. And without letting himself be consoled by her love, he stands and marches forward. So he leaves the Passover to go to the garden, and there he embraces the tree of death. But because he's not just man, he's also God. He's in the business of transformation. He took bread and wine and transformed it into his body and blood, and he took the tree of death and turned it into the tree of life. If only you and I would lay hold of the fruit and eat of it, the church fathers all agree that the fruit of the tree of life that's found in the book of Revelation at the wedding feast of the lamb and in the heavenly Jerusalem, this beautiful image that this is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ offered for us in the Eucharist. And Jesus himself says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in you. So when you start to look at these things, not only are we seeing Adam and Eve in the garden, we're seeing the priest Melchizedek. We're seeing Isaac offering, being offered, right? The beloved son of the father being offered. But then a ram is, you know, what does Abraham say? He says, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice, right? This crazy intense. Isaac had the wood of the sacrifice placed on his back and went up Mount Moriah, which is there in Jerusalem. The parallels are there for us to see it. The, the Passover that was sacrificed. But it's not enough, St. Paul says. You know the practice of Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's not enough for the animal to be sacrificed, for you participate in the sacrifice by eating the animal. And this is when St. Paul introduces the institution narrative of the Last Supper. Do you not know that the bread which we bless is a participation in the body of Christ? Do you not know that this cup which we bless is a participation in the very blood of Christ. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In chapter 11, he says, if anyone whatsoever eats the flesh and drinks the blood in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks judgment upon himself. If I come unprepared, if I come without being washed in the blood of the lamb or forgiven of my mortal sins, I am unprepared to receive what he wants to give me. Because this is not 
just a meal. This is a memorial, a sacrificial memorial. Well, what he did 2,000 years ago, once for all, is renewed and made present for you and me 2,000 years later. The number one mix-up that Catholics have in their head is that when we come to Mass, we're coming to a reenactment of the Last Supper. No, 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 no. When we come to Mass, we are going to a representation of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's not like we're reenacting the Last Supper. I had one guy say, we should have like 12 people gathered around the altar. And, you know, get the, it's like, no, no, this is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is why St. Paul says, if you eat this bread, you proclaim his death until he returns in glory. Right? That's why all of this stuff matters, because the sacrifice is the center moment of all of human history. I mean, John's gospel is like 21 chapters long. And chapter 12 is when we get to the Last Supper. That's kind of a big deal. It's three years before that for all the rest of the chapters. And so the drama, the moment, the, pin, the, the, the climax, Christ then makes accessible to us every time we come here before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Holy Mass is not just, it's not just a ritual meal. It's a sacrificial memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. But it's more than that. It is our participation in the self-offering of the Son to the Father. So we leave here a Eucharistic people because we come here and witness what it took to give us the Holy Eucharist. So tonight you are going to have the opportunity for confessions. You have five priests coming tonight who want nothing more than to hear your sins, not to delight over it or to make you have a guilt trip, but to offer the very thing that frees you from guilt. And what do they say when they pronounce absolution? Through the death and resurrection of his son. Right, see, the sacraments are not powered by the holiness of our priests. Every parish is super blessed when you have a holy priest. But the holiness of the minister is not what makes the sacrament efficacious. Because Christ is the minister of every sacrament. Because the Paschal Mystery is the engine that powers all seven of them. Right? Like, how does St. Paul talk about marriage? Like, marriage, we think, well, that's not really salvific. Especially if you met my wife. But the idea of marriage, let's say, this is, that's a terrible joke. But in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says that Christ, that husbands ought to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he says, see with what great words I speak, and I'm speaking reference to Christ and the church. That even marriage, right, which we think like, okay, I mean, it's a sacrament, but it already is a natural sacrament. But marriage itself becomes Christological. It becomes its center point in the death and resurrection of Jesus every time. That's the point of the Christian life, dying and rising. This is how we move and grow, and this is how we are nourished. We come before Jesus Christ, and we fall on our knees because that's what we would do if we were at the foot of the cross. We would praise him as he deserves to be praised and we would fall on our knees because we don't deserve to be here. But this is the glorious news of the New Testament. We don't deserve it, but he calls us anyway. And he makes us worthy of a gift that we could never be worthy of on our own. Brothers and sisters, you've been washed in the blood of the lamb. You've been confirmed in the spirit of truth. 
You literally have the, the, the person that unites the Father and Son from all eternity within you, the Holy Spirit. So why do we let these silly little things cling to us to prevent us from finding the freedom that Christ died and rose to give us? When you go to confession, the biggest advice I can give you is start with the big ones. Number one, okay, let me, I have to say this in mixed company. Don't confess your spouse's sins. You can't get forgiven for them, right? And if you think, and priests tell me all the time, people always confess other people's sins in the confessionals. Like, don't do that. Number two, though, even if you feel like 95% their fault, still confess it, because that 5% still, it still contributes. But then I would say this, lead with the big ones. Spend time in an examination, lead with the big ones. Why? I don't want to do that. I'm totally guilty of the Catholic dance. I've disguised my voice before behind the screen. I have been cowardly in every which way a Roman Catholic can be cowardly in the confessional. But the idea is this, how much do you want freedom? How much do you want it? Why are we so scared to give up what we cannot keep in order to gain what we'll never lose? And here's the funny thing, he already knows. And he already paid. He's down in the basement with our darkness and sin, and he's vanquishing the dragons. He just wants you to join him. That's what grace is. So we have to be able to confront the worst part about ourselves. And we do that by telling the holiest guy we can find the worst things we've ever done, which is weird, but it's good. It's weird, but it's good because therein lies liberty. So brothers and sisters, tonight you are going to have a beautiful opportunity to adore Jesus Christ. And while adoration is so wonderful and we are so blessed in the Roman Catholic Church to be able to have adoration, it's always secondary to reception of Jesus in the Mass, where the Paschal Mystery is not just displayed, but fulfilled in our communion. So confession tonight should be that march towards the next Mass, right? Adoration to soak in the sun's rays so that you can go to Mass the next time. And when you receive our Lord in the Eucharist, you know you receive him with a free and clear and hopeful conscience. Amen? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you died to take away our sin. You rose to restore us to new life. But that new life is not just giving up an hour on Sundays or two hours on a Tuesday night. It's to live a new way of life, to live out the Eucharist, to live out being blessed and even being broken so that we can be given. But Jesus, you have taken us today out of the world. You have called us to be here. So that first step is already done. So Jesus, we just dispose our hearts and minds that we want to receive whatever good and perfect gift you want to bring us tonight. So when the sacred host is placed in the monstrance, Lord, we can see your kingdom come, that we might let your will be done in our hearts and minds. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mother Mary, who stood at the foot of the cross, 
who alone with every priest in the world can say, this is my body, this is my blood. We ask for your maternal intercession now as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Follow and subscribe in your podcast app for updates and notifications when new content is released. And thank you for listening. Together, our faith goes further.